0: I mentioned at the end of my lesson this morning that after you see God's purposes and you see His great uh, plan and the fact that He would be so wonderful as to not judge us on the basis of our sins and our iniquities, but instead to to judge us on the basis of His desire to glorify His name. And I mentioned how difficult that is for me to grasp in my mind. I mentioned to Brent uh, as we were driving uh, after services today that one of the challenges I have is I didn't grow up hearing that. Many of you did not grow up hearing that. And to begin to picture God differently than the God that I grew up hearing about is very, very difficult. And as much as I can read the scripture and hear God say that this is the way I'm going to judge you, and this is the way I'm going to treat you, not according to your sins and your iniquities, but according to my holiness and according to my 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 holy name, and that is the way that I'm going to do it. I I look at it and I say, I hear you. But I have been so ingrained in seeing you as a different kind of God that I'm struggling with that. A lot of that is because, as Brent has just mentioned, it is because we haven't studied the Bible correctly, it's because we left out major sections of the Bible, uh, deciding that that wasn't important. It's because we were told oftentimes, well, we're not under the Old Testament, so why read it? As Brent was just mentioning, well, we read it because Jesus said uh, to the two on Emmaus and the road to Emmaus that uh, he needed to go through the whole Bible, including from Moses on, and show himself. Paul even said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, that the way you discover faith in Christ Jesus is by reading the Old Testament scriptures. Shocking statement. If somebody said to me, well, where am I going to read about learning about faith in Jesus? I'd say the New Testament. That's not what Paul said. He said, you're going to learn that from the Old Testament Scriptures. We miss that over and again. And therefore, the God that we saw and the God that we learned about was an incomplete picture and we didn't see Him correctly. So what we have been really attempting to do all week is to try to give you a little glimpse of the God who is really in the Bible. So that we don't believe in a different God. We don't believe in the wrong God, or we don't picture him in the wrong way. I still, as I said, and this is where I want to follow up now in the lesson this morning, I still diff- had to have a difficult time when I fail, and I know you do too. When we fail, we we simply are know we're failing God. And and our thoughts begin to go within us and we reflect what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7 and Verse 15, when he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. <laughs> and we all felt that. We, we know that. And it's very, very frustrating. And, and it, it makes it so it's difficult to go to God in prayer because the next thing we're thinking is, well, I know better. I knew better. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I did it anyway. And I continue to fall short. I, I feel then just so completely hopeless. So in this final lesson, what I would like to do is try to solve that. And do so in a way that goes beyond just God telling us, like He said in Ezekiel 20, that I'm not going to judge you according to your sins and your iniquities. But do it in a way to say, here's how we can really understand how He would do that. So let's understand how God would judge us, not according to our sins and iniquities, but judge us according to His glory and His holy name. I'm going to start in a place that you may not be uh, uh, thinking about, uh, thinking that we would. I'm going to start with the promises to Abraham. So if we'll go over to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 16, we're going to look at the promises made to Abraham. Now this is a little different place. We usually go to Genesis 12, but I want you to see it from Genesis 22 because the way God gives the promises here sound a little different. He uses different wording. And so I want you to pay attention to the wording. This is right after Abraham offers Isaac on the altar. And after he offers him, then the angel, of course, speaking for God, then comes to Abraham, and verse 16, he says this, "...by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring." as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Alright, there are three promises there. Which of the three promises do we concentrate on? Which of the three do we think, that's the biggie? Well, we think, in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. We like the third one. That's what applies to us, we, we say. Now those first two, about I'm going to multiply your offspring as the sand of the sea, and your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies, we kind of go, well, that was for the physical nation, Israel, and that was fulfilled for them. But we get the third one. And that's the way I kind of grew up. Maybe you've learned differently, and that's be wonderful. I'm going to suggest to you tonight that we have mistakenly, when we have looked at it that way, we, have, we are mistaken. And we should have seen that all three promises are ultimately fulfilled in us and for us. And so that is going to teach us something about our assurance in Christ. That's going to teach us something about how Christ could actually save us and bless us and give us an ultimate assurance of our salvation. And go beyond just that third promise. And I'm not taking away from that third promise. But we've taken away from the first two. And I want us to see that. So the first thing we want to do is I, I want to go and just make a point before we continue on this set point, And make a point from Genesis 15. Because Genesis 15, we have we have Abraham asking the same question that you and I ask ourselves all the time. This is where, in Genesis 15, is where, where God told Abraham about these blessings. And about how he was going to have descendants and all of this. And that he was going to give him a land. But in verse 7, here's what Abraham said. He said to him, I am... Right, let's read verse 7, then you'll see what Abraham said. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, that's Abraham, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now now that is exactly the way I feel about it. God says, I'm going to give you a secure land to live in. I'm going to give you a place that you can be secure and you do not have to worry about your enemies and you do not have to be worry about being attacked. You're going to be absolutely secure. Don't worry about it. I'll protect you forever. That's what the land promise is. Did you hear it? The land promise just isn't simply a piece of dirt. The land promise is you're going to be protected. It's the promised land. What's the promised land prefigure? We all know that. We sing about it. To Canaan's land I'm on. Yeah, right. We are looking for heaven. How do I know I'm going to receive it? That's what Abraham is asking here. How do I know it's going to receive it? Hebrew writer even says, he was looking for a better land. (laughs) He wasn't just looking for the piece of dirt in Canaan. He's looking for a better land. That's what he's looking for. So we just think, we just we just like those Israelites, we're just thinking on a physical level. We've got to get beyond that. In fact, when you look back at the statement in chapter 22, what was said that illustrates the land promise? This is the reason I wanted you to see this one. Instead of saying you're going to inherit the land, in this place, God says, your offspring shall possess the gate of His enemies. Now, when you think of Israel's history, who possessed whose gate? The enemies possessed Israel's gate over and over and over again. But in the promise, God said you will possess the gate of your enemies. You will stand at their gate and you will possess their gate and you'll tell them when they can come out and come in. They will not possess you. You see the power? You see the security? You see the the, the whole kingdom picture that God wins and we win with God? See that? That's exactly what He says. So when God says to Abraham, I'm going to do it, and Abraham says, how am I going to know? You know what God does? Well... We can't, don't have time to, to look at it all, but back in Genesis 15, God says, Abraham, go get a bunch of animals, pigeons, doves, uh, calves, all this kind of stuff, and cut them in half and put them in a line and wait till evening and Abraham would chew off the, the birds, the, 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 the vultures and whatever else. And then in the evening, here comes God in this flaming fire and He passes through the middle of the animals. Reread over that and kind of go, Oh, okay, well, let's go on to chapter 16. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> that was God touching blood and making a unilateral covenant. Abraham didn't pass through those animals with God, only God passed through. That means that God made a promise, touched blood, and said, I will do it. You want to doubt him? Mm mm. When God touches blood, He's going to keep His promise. And that's the covenant He makes with Abraham and all of Abraham's offspring. Well, guess who Abraham's offspring are? Us. Genesis chapter, I mean, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. What's the last of it? Heirs. According to the promise. What what, what promise? We just read it. God is giving us the security that I'm going to provide for you. This secure land promise. Which means that you cannot, you cannot have the enemy come and take away what I give you. So much different than that actual physical land that the enemy could take away. This isn't going to happen here. Now, did physical Israel ever ever received that promise? No! <laughs> it would have brief periods of time where they had some security, but they kept failing, and God kept allowing the enemies to come in. It never really took place in the sense that they had the security. Oh yeah, they got on the land. But the land's no fun if the Romans are ruling. <laughs> the land's no fun if the Greeks are conquering. The land's no fun if the Persians are whipping you. The land's no fun if the Babylonians are ripping you apart. You see, that's the deal. And that's where they, they were left. Look at three quick prophecies to illustrate this very thing. Isaiah 48, verse 17-19, through 19, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, The Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to My commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never be cut off or destroyed before Me. What what does He say to Israel? I would have made you. I would have made your offspring like the sand of the sea. Well, you go scratching your head and go, oh God. But I thought I thought you 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 promised you would do that. I did, and I'm going to. But it hasn't happened yet. Here we are, in Isaiah's time, and he says, it's, it's, you guys have just been fouling up." In fact, so much for you. You look at Jeremiah. Here's what the the people understood this. Jeremiah 33:20. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed? That what these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that He chose. Thus, they have despised My people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord: If I have not established My covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, My servant, and will not choose one of the offspring to rule over the offspring, but choose one of His offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. The people understood that they hadn't received God's promise yet. And so, you know, Jeremiah is in the day where here comes the Babylonians and wipe them all out and they get taken off the land and all this. And God simply says, they're saying I'm not going to fulfill my promise. He says, goodness... If I break my covenant with night and day, if I, if I haven't done that, well, then I would. But boy, I haven't broken that covenant and I won't break it with them either. There's one other. Look at Isaiah 54, 1-3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. That's Sarah. Right? Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. That's Sarah. For the children of the desolate one. That's Sarah. Sarah will be more than the children of her who is married. That's Hagar. Hagar thinks she's the married one because she had a baby. And Sarah didn't. And so don't worry, Sarah. Your children are going to way be more than her children. And remember, Paul in Galatians says that Hagar's children represent the physical nation of Israel. (laughs) Oh, so the physical nation didn't get the promise. The people came from Sarah get the promise. That's us. Watch what he says then. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let your curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Where's the land promise? The whole world. Because your people are going to be so many they're just going to spread out to the whole world. Oh, The land promise isn't Israel anymore. The land promise isn't Palestine or Canaan. It's spreading to the whole world. Break your tents out, Israel. Here it comes. The nations are now going to be coming in and are going to be your people. Now let's see how the land promise is fulfilled in the Messiah. And we're just going to look at, again, just about three or four brief patches, but it's all going to come right out of Ezekiel 36 here. So turn and look at Ezekiel 36. And notice what Ezekiel says about how the Messiah is going to fulfill this land promise. So, first in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, God says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now that's that's the Messiah, and just before that, he talked about how he cleanse us and all this. Put my spirit in you, etc. But then all of a sudden, verse 28, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you should be my people, and I will be your God. Down in verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Well, that happened. No. it <laughs> didn't happen for physical Israel. That's talking about us. Go on in 33. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. When's God going to rebuild everything? When I cause you to be cleansed from your iniquities. Uh, that's in Jesus. That's in the Messiah. He's going to confirm that even more. Verse 34. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being a desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Restoration back to life with the tree of life. Like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. This is all in the context of the coming of Jesus and those uh, who follow Jesus. Look on at chapter 37. Ah, oh, you all know about 37, don't you? Valley of dry bones. Prophesy over the bones. The bones all come together. Sinews come on it. All of this. And what's that a picture of? Whoa! restoration of the nation. But what nation? Not the physical nation, because look down at verse 14. When all that happens, he says, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I'll place you on your in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord God. Now, he goes on to talk about how he'll bring them all into one nation. Go on down then to Ezekiel 37, verse 25. And let's see if this is talking about physical nation, or is it talking about all of us today? Look at it. Verse 25. They shall dwell in their land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Who's going to be their prince? David. Well, who's that talking about? Not the physical David, but the Messiah David. That's the idea. He's restoring the kingdom. I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's through Jesus. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and watch this, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. This is what Brent's been talking about from Exodus. God brings His temple back and the temple now is Jesus and He lives among us and dwells among us again and we have that relationship again. Verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them and I'll be their God and they should be my people. That Paul quotes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 through 18. He says the exact same thing, that that's, that's happened. Verse 28, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Here is this permanent dwelling and abiding that God has with us that is a picture of Him giving us that security and never deserting us and giving us then the greatness of the land promise. Did you see how the land was sprinkled through the whole thing about the coming of Messiah? Look, maybe this helps. We read in Isaiah 11, the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb. The lion and the child are going to play together, and we all read that and go, "Yeah," because when I look at the context, I know it's talking about the days of Jesus, and it's talking about how within His kingdom there's not going to be this wolf and lamb thing. We're gonna we're gonna love each other. You know, I got the, I'm the wolf. Okay, I'll admit it, and uh, I come in, but I eating the, the I'm not eating the sheep. There, so there there you go. And, and we all are different. But we all are going to come together. And we have peace in his kingdom. We know it's figures. And that's what he's giving here. It's figures. James even quotes these same past kinds of passages from Amos. About the land promise in Acts chapter 15. And verse 13 through 18. And it says it's already happened. It's already happened. So we have to think differently when we read these particular passages. Now, final text. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 beginning at verse 11. What we're going to do here now is we're going to notice how this land promise is fulfilled then in the Messiah because the Hebrew writer is going to explain that to us. So Hebrews 6 and we'll begin here at verse 11. Hebrews 6:11. Now, what's the condition of the Hebrew Christians? Not good. They become sluggish. They become slothful. They're falling back. They're they're ready to fall away. He's very scared for them that they're going to fall away. He's trying to give them a word of encouragement. In fact, he later just says, I've written this brief letter as a word of encouragement. Trying to strengthen them. Well, what would strengthen them? Ah, watch this. Verse 11. When we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. What's the writer's desire? Full assurance. Not half, not three quarters, not 90%. (laughs) Full assurance of hope. Not for a little while, not for a year. To the end I want you to have full assurance so I want you to show the same earnestness diligence I don't want you to be slothful I want you to be diligent so that you can have this full assurance of hope to the end well but but, 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 but uh, writer of Hebrews um, I haven't been doing very good lately can, can you give me a little motivation sure be glad to give you some motivation verse 12. So that, I'm going to give you this full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I'm going to make it so that you can be like, you can imitate those great people of old like Abraham, etc., who can have this faith and patience to inherit. What do you inherit? You inherit lands. You inherit wealth you inherit. He says, I want you to be able to inherit. So don't worry, I'm going to help you with this. Alright, so verse 13, here's how I'm going to help you. 4. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Do you know where the Hebrew writer quoted that from? The passage we read in Genesis 22, 16-18. I swore by myself, God said. I swear by myself. And the writer here says, I want you to know that when when God made a promise to Abraham, because He couldn't swear by anyone greater, He swore by Himself, saying, surely I will bless you. All right, I, you know, I just have to stop and say, I truly love that picture. We We, we think of somebody swear you know and they you know in a court of law i i swear you know that i will tell the truth the whole, all this you know and and etc and maybe they in the olden days they used to put your hand on the bible they probably don't do that anymore but uh you know i i i, sw- I swear and, and and here's god going okay um i i swear oh i swear by me <laughs> you you what yeah well there's nobody greater Uh, So I just swear by me. Wow. that's, That's really amazing. He just says, I just swear by me. So God makes this oath that He is going to surely bless you. Thus verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose. Uh, uh, show more convincingly to who? The heirs of the promise. Oh, who's that? raise your hand, that's us, that's right, here we are, I wanted to show that more convincingly to the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast with the hope set before us. Now why do you do it? So that we have strong encouragement to hold fast with the hope set before us. Alright, now, let's break this down a little bit. God, I'm not exactly sure why you swore by yourself. Uh, Do you need to swear? Do you need to take an oath? You know, why do people take an oath? Because everybody's a pile of liars. (laughs) Because you can't trust people. So why do you take an oath? Because we lie. (laughs) That's why we take an oath. To prove to people we're not, you know, goofing around here. Well, God, do you need to take an oath? Well, no. He's never lied. He's absolutely trustworthy. I don't have to worry about God. But God says, no, no, no. I'm going to take an oath. And that's why He says, by two unchangeable things. That is, I can't... I can't lie. And so what I did was, is I first I made a promise and then I swore. So two unchangeable things. All you had to do is make the promise. Come on, God. I mean, all you had to do is make You didn't have to swear forever. No, no. I wanted to swear because here's why. I wanted to give you strong encouragement to hold fast. Why did you think I might not hold fast? Because I know you. And I know you get discouraged. And I know you get down on yourself. And I know you feel like giving up when you look at yourself in the mirror and know what you've done wrong. I know you. So that's the reason I swore. I gave an oath on top of the promise so that I could give you strong encouragement. You don't, you don't give up. You don't get sluggish. You don't do that. You stick with it because I swore by myself. Oh, well, all right. Well, that's pretty cool. And not only that, verse 17 says, God desired to show, not convincingly, more convincingly. (laughs) I wanted to be really convincing to you. I want to show more convincingly what? That I am unchangeable. The unchangeable character of my promise and my purpose. I can't change it. Why, why, why can't you change it? Because I gave you an oath. I promised, I swore by myself, and I can't lie. You know, every once in a while you hear some yokel saying, Well, could God, can, is there anything God can't do? <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. You can't lie. Try that one out. Sometimes I read the Bible and I think, really? I can't lie. Oh, I guess I better trust that. You can't lie. So he wants to show this unchangeable purpose. How good is God's guarantee? That's what he says there. He guaranteed it. He guaranteed it with an oath. How good is his guarantee? I don't know about you, but I've bought some things that had a warranty on it. And it broke and I took it back and the company was gone. Well, that's not a very good guarantee. <laughs> you know, that's, that's gone. Well, we need somebody who's not going to be gone when we need him. He says, I got a guarantee for you. Absolute guarantee. I'm going to bless you. What did he swear now? I will surely bless you. That was referencing, you'll possess the gate of your enemies. That was referencing the idea that I am going to give you absolute security. You win, telling you right up front, you win. So, what's that supposed to do for you? That's a motivation. Do you see that in the text? The whole thing about the security is a motivation. You know what we've done? We've done. We've done. Well, I don't. You know, I don't want as a preacher. You know, tell you your salvation is sure. Because if I did, you might just relax and, you know, go out there and just sin and be like a goofball. And the Lord takes the opposite view. If I show you how much I love you, care about you, and that I'm saving you, regardless of the fact that you have been my enemy, then that's going to motivate you to love me all the more and do all the more for me. I I learned that in marriage. (laughs) You know, hey guys, try this. Wake up in the morning and give your wife a whole bunch of commandments. Not sounding good to you? No, okay. Let's try that again. Wake up in the morning and do everything you can think of to please her. How do you think she responds to that? A whole lot better than commandments. (laughs) Yeah. There's God. He's not just throwing a bunch of commandments at us. He is throwing Himself. Giving Himself. And He says, that is a strong motivation. Oh, baby. That's a greater motivation than any commandment. You can command me all day long and I'm just going to see if I can find a loophole. But when He gives Himself All I can think of is, how much can I give myself? Because I love him so much for what he's doing. What's the purpose again? Strong encouragement to hold fast that the hope set before us. Alright, now I got that far. But I'm still kind of going, okay, here's here's my problem here. Here's my problem. Um, How can God say that? How how can he really justify a sinner like me? I I know he says it, but how can he say it? I'm just, I'm just really kind of confused on that. And so, what God says is, verse 19, this sure, this, this sure hope is, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You get this anchor for your soul that runs into behind the curtain and connects to the Lord. What does the high priest do behind the curtain? He sprinkles blood to forgive the people's sins. Then he leaves. Jesus goes behind the curtain and He sprinkles His own blood. And He doesn't leave. Did you see the rest of the sentence? Verse twenty. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now we read Melchizedek and our you know our brains started getting fuzzy and something blows out our ears and we go, I don't know, well, Mel- Melchizedek, who? What who cares about Melchizedek? Oh, you better care about Mel- Melchizedek. Because you see. Our salvation is dependent upon a high priest that's behind that veil sprinkling blood. That's our salvation. That's how he can give the surety. That's how he can anchor our soul. That's how he can swear by himself. That's how he can make that promise way back in the days of Abraham. Because he's going to raise up a priest after the order of Melchizedek who's going to walk behind that veil with his own blood and he is not going to leave He is going to stay there with that blood forever. Forever. That's what he's going to do. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want you to see this text. He goes on talking about that. Look at chapter 7 of Hebrews. Here's our last thing. Verse 23. He makes this point. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He didn't walk into the veil, throw some blood on the mercy seat, and leave. He's still there. He's still there. He ever lives behind the veil with his own blood, making intercession. Do you see those words? Saves to the uttermost. That means completely, fully, as far as you can go without any question and doubt. Because why? He, Those who draw near to God through Him, He's always living. Always living. He doesn't die. He has a new priesthood. Our high priest is behind that veil. Forever, always living, making intercession for those who draw near to God. Which means right now, he is behind that veil. And he is interceding for Jamie, for Edwin, for Hope, for Eddie. That's where he is. Don't you ever forget that. What's that do for you? You're not giving up, are you? No. You're not quitting, are you? Why? Because he's there. And that's how God could make a promise And that's what the land promise was all about. Security. I swore by myself. My high priest is going to be behind that veil forever making intercession to the uttermost. Beat that. Thank you for inviting us again. It's such an honor and pleasure we appreciate it so much. We have such a good time. We feel like you're the closest family we have. And it's so nice to be with you. Uh, we appreciate so much all that you've provided for us, all that you've done for us. We love you dearly. We're going to sing a song, and if there's any way that you need to be helped in coming to Christ, and in, in strengthening yourself to be able to serve Him, we encourage you to make that step together. And I'll be saying while we sing.